Well, good morning uh, from London and also good morning from uh, deep Buckinghamshire, uh, where we have Gavin Oldham OBE. Uh, Gavin is the founder of the Share Foundation. He'll be saying more about his, his role, his background and the limits of what he can speak on this morning. Um, but I don't think there are many limits because you're going to be talking about a world of individual opportunity, the vision of egalitarian capitalism. And I can truly vouch for Gavin's sincerity in this subject, uh, having worked with him uh, over a few decades, uh, most particularly in the idea of local share exchanges. Now, you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it truly is an honor to be able to introduce so many of these fun webinars. And I can only do that because of our sponsors. And I would like to thank our sponsors most sincerely for their tolerance in allowing us to range widely and freely over technology, economics, and finance. It's re really heartening to see the amount of effort they give us uh, and the support that they arrange. Now, today's program is going to be uh, very similar to those of you who've been on a few of these. Uh, my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible so you can hear from our expert, Gavin. Uh, Gavin will be speaking for about 20 minutes, and he's got some pretty controversial things to say, as well as a couple of polls to keep us all awake with some really probing questions. So uh, do pay attention. Uh, we will then move into a 20-minute uh, Q&A session where I'll be fielding your questions. Uh, three points of housekeeping, if I may. Uh, the first is, yes, the slides will be posted. In fact, I think are posted at the moment. Secondly, uh, the recording will be up. It'll be up in about two working days. So if you want to watch it again or share it with friends and colleagues, it should be up uh, sometime midday on Friday. And finally, uh, in terms of the questions and answers, please do use the GoToWebinar question and answer facility. I am here with you, so I won't be receiving your signals, your WhatsApps, your emails, your all the various mechanisms of communication these days, far too many. I'll be here with you. Um, so if you want to feed those into the Q&A session, just type them in. Gavin will be receiving all of your questions, comments, and observations with your email attached. So if you want to enter into some sort of private dialogue, just say so, and I'll make sure that he gets all of that. Uh, in terms of follow-up. But that's uh, that's basically it for me. Um, so over to you, Gavin. The floor is definitely yours. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Michael. And before I begin, perhaps I should say that although I wear a number of hats, I am speaking today in a purely personal capacity. So in a world where two dominant economic systems have been shaped by their impact on individuals, I am always surprised that the study and disciplines of economics are always driven by aggregates. Those two dominant uh, economic systems are, of course, capitalism and communism. The former has grown into heavyweight intermediation over decades of wealth concentration and generational favoritism, which has morphed into powerful financial organizations which drive the whole system. Half the population has negligible amounts of wealth, and the disposable assets are effectively restricted to just the richest 30%. The situation will be even more acute post-pandemic than shown in this chart, which is not cumulative. The totals in each column are the total wealth in that decile. Wealth inequality can not only be seen across the breadth of a population, but also by age cohorts, with generations born after 1970 having significantly lower levels of home ownership. There is no doubt that capitalism and the market economy are at the heart of wealth creation, fostering enterprise and creativity and encouraging the best from people. And yet the rich get richer, the poor poorer, 
and the average age of wealth increases until something snaps and very large numbers of people with no hope say up with this we will not put and then the pendulum swings once more democratic capitalism which is not anchored by measures to give genuine equality of opportunity particularly for the young is doomed to experience dramatic dr dramatic reverses and to impose a serious degree of unhappiness however communism was designed for heavyweight intermediation in the first place intended to be controlled by a benevolent dictatorship which ensures that everyone is a vassal of the state with little opportunity to be in control of their own destiny excess intermediation whether by state or by financial institutions has failed the stark evidence of its failures stands out for all to see in the collapse of the soviet union the 2008 financial crash and various violent revolutions over hundreds of years. Scientific swings, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, uh, societies swing between the two systems like a pendulum, reacting against the excesses which reflect the shortcomings of their controlling powers. The human condition is not one which should be ruled by others. Disintermediation should be one of the yardsticks by which the effectiveness and fairness of economic systems should be measured. Disintermediation requires that the impact on individuals are taken into account and the need for people to take individual responsibility and control is recognized. A truly effective sense of ownership is built over time and is best accompanied by a, company, by, uh, by a combination of learning and, and earning in the widest sense. It is the contrast between give a fish to feed for a week or teach to fish to last for a lifetime. Microfinance has shown how effective this can be, not only for the individual, but also for their local community. Contrast this with inheritance passed down to fortunate descendants who have played no part in its construction, or to the winner of a lottery prize who may be delighted by their good fortune, but has no idea how to handle it. Effective intergenerational rebalancing relies on interweaving both finance and life skills. The gift of potential when life begins makes no distinction for nature. In terms of socioeconomic conditions, race, creed, nationality or other. Yet, as Antoine de Saint-Exupéry pointed out in the epilogue of his book, Wind, Sand and Stars, it is often smothered by nurture leading to a subservient underclass pushed about by the intermediation of others. It's for all these reasons that I am passionate for a more egalitarian form of capitalism. True respect for others will, will, will enable every individual to have a stake in the society in which they live and to provide real opportunity for young people to achieve their potential. And respect for others is, a most, is most effective when it is disintermediated. This is not just a short-term endeavor. It's calling for a permanent restructuring, which results in genuine ownership and responsibility. It's intergenerational, and it means tackling both wealth polarization and the huge shortfall in financial awareness. At the heart of the egalitarian capitalist society, must be the principles of free enterprise and individual liberty, as espoused by Thomas Jefferson 200 years ago. 
Egalitarian capitalism is about people from all walks of life having the opportunity to experience a genuine sense of ownership and to feel in control of their own destiny. It's not about searching for short-term palliatives. It's about looking for a permanent structural change, which will fire up each new generation with the resources and life skills needed to achieve their potential. If we can introduce a reliable model in the United Kingdom, it should be exportable. We can literally change the world with this new approach to economics. E egalitarian capitalism should enable people from all walks of life to make the journey from working for money towards the point where money works for them so that we can so that we no longer see capital and labor as protagonists across society but where both are available to all there are two strands in my approach the first for our current adult generations and the second for young and uh, yeah for the young and generations to come for adults it means a program of determined capital participation some may claim that the term egalitarian does not correspond with the basic tenets of capitalism, but that only serves to explain the problem with the traditional view of it. Margaret Thatcher may have tried to label it as popular, but in the 1980s, uh, 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 in the 1980s, but unless all can share in wealth creation, it will always be seen as elitist. Some of the key ingredients for this capital participation for all are a new drive for personal uh, a new drive for personal share ownership in order to reconnect people with business including encouraging covid-19 based increases in the savings ratio to move into equities a substantial increase in voting and fiscal encouragement for investment clubs recognizing their ability to build confidence in risk assessment and knowledge of investment this to include new issue participation and a close look at the operation of preemption rights, rebalancing the scales between private equity and public markets, to include looking at the treatment of interest, stamp duty, the burden of regulation, and the bias towards business trade sales as opposed to retail flirtations, and reviewing whether initiatives such as shared ownership do in fact boost home ownership, particularly for young people, and the psychological interplay between personal debt and investment. But all of these will only shift the dial slightly. It is the technological revolution which gives us a real opportunity to move swiftly into widespread capital participation, introducing a new program for data storage and harvesting by tech giants to be recognized in share ownership for their customers. The digital markets unit within the Competition and Markets Authority is tasked, among other things, with investigating and reacting to the exploitation of data. Meanwhile, in the US, Congress is clear that tech power has reached such levels as to allow it to hoover up competition at will and needs to be checked. In Yanis Varoufakis' book, Talking to My Daughter, A Brief History of Capitalism, he addresses the economic impact of deep automation at every level of society in a chapter entitled Haunted Machines. His concern about the comprehensive replacement of human labor with robotics is clear, but he also appreciates the dichotomy presented by the inevitable march of technological progress. The tech giant's concentration of wealth is staggering, and hardly a day passes without some report of the deployment of excessive wealth concentration in vanity projects 
such as space tourism. No wonder Varoufakis says, our creations, the machines installed in every factory, field, office and shop, have helped produce a great many products and changed our lives utterly, but they have not eradicated poverty, hunger, inequality, chores, or the anxiety about our basic needs. So there is also a fundamental instability in this process because machines, unlike human labor, don't spend money. Rather, they hoover up the money circulating in the economic system at large, and they deposit it at the disposal of their super rich masters. Instead of letting employees' weekly expenditure fuel the income for others through society, some economists have tried to address this by proposing a universal basic income, but this is surely looking for the lowest common denominator or leveling down, a route by which the vast humanity, uh, the, the, the vast majority of humanity, will be left on subsistence terms, while Bezos, Zuckerberg, and Cook fill their palaces with gold and the sky with rockets and satellites. A current Amazon advertisement says, at Amazon, we don't just think big, we do big. A couple of weeks ago, when Jeff Bezos converted the revenues from millions of his customers into his single space trip on the 20th of July, we had a graphic example of the economic impact of monetary hoovering. The answer lies in democratizing the equity ownership of the tech giants. And because their masters will not enable this voluntarily, governments need to set up the criteria by which this is to be achieved. For if the majority of humanity, who almost all use the services of big tech, were to see their working wages gradually being replaced by regular dividends from the equity ownership, we will achieve a society in which all can benefit from a massive boost in experiential wealth, which automation is bringing about. So we should use big tech's huge storage and harvesting of our personal data as the currency for the distribution of their equity shares to their customers. We're all aware that the tech giants sit on immense stores of data about us. GDPR has done almost nothing to rein in their, their intrusion into our personal lives. And this will achieve two great benefits. Firstly, that there will be democratic control over the way they behave, including that check on antitrust behavior. And secondly, that the flow of dividends will gradually replace the huge quantity of lost money that their automation is gradually sucking out of circulation. Now, we've got a poll for you at this point. So here's the question. How would you prefer to see giant tech made more accountable? Using antitrust measures to weaken their quasi-monopoly? requiring them to, to issue equity voting shares to their customers in respect of stored and harvested per personal data, or do nothing. Okay, folks, so we've got the question up there. Uh, as ever, Gavin, the audience votes very swiftly here. 59% had voted in seven seconds, so they've obviously got some strong opinions. Uh, over 85% uh, of the audience have voted, so I think we can go ahead and show the results in just a second. Uh, here we go. Just sharing those results. So uh, nearly two thirds of the audience believe in issuing equity voting shares to their customers. 
32% uh, using antitrust measures, and only 6% believe nothing should be done. So we have a very activist uh, crowd out here today. Uh, so back to you, Gavin. Uh, thank you, thank you. Of course, permanent restructuring to enable capital participation for all also means applying an intergenerational ratchet to ensure that, that each new generation is endowed with the opportunity to achieve their full potential. So we'll turn to that next. In a society where, as David Willits has explained in his book, The Pinch, the vertical link between generations is so strained, intergenerational rebalancing is particularly relevant. For example, there are proportionately far more young people born into disadvantaged black and minority ethnic families than into those wealthy white people. If no ratchet is applied to capitalism, their only economic hope for the future is through state intervention. The denial of hope and opportunity for young people is most acute for black and minority ethnic people. The root cause of racial injustice is economic inequality. Intergenerational balancing provides a solution for resolving that inequality. So the way forward for international, the way forward for intergenerational rebalancing is to combine starter capital accounts with incentivized learning. The latter, so that there is a strong sense of the young person having earned the assets. The vehicle for these starter capital accounts would be closely aligned with a child trust fund. There are 6 million young people in the UK who have these individual accounts. In the context of egalitarian capitalism, these provide individual ownership for all. And we're just going to play you a quick one minute video, uh, which we produced for the Share Foundation to help young people find their child trust funds. Were you born in the UK between the 1st of September 2002 and the 2nd of January 2011? If you were, chances are the government made a payment into a child trust fund for you. And there could be like a grand in there. The idea was to make sure that when kids turned 18, they had some cash to spend on the stuff that matters, like university, or a car, or I don't know, go travel in the world. This isn't a joke. Every one of you probably has one. When you turn 16, you can take control of your account, but you can only withdraw your money after your 18th birthday. Before that, someone should get in touch with you about what you want to do with your money. As long as they know where to find you, it's really important to tell them, because after all, it's yours. There's something like 20,000 of us turning 18 every month. We don't even know this money exists. So don't wait around. If you don't claim it, you could lose it forever. What are you waiting for? Register now and get control of your money. Super. There we go. Okay, so a government endowment today using the junior ISA account, which would only apply to those young people whose families and background leave them without hope of meaningful, uh, meaningful family inheritance. The catch up for those under 18 who do not currently have a child trust fund would entail a one off commitment of about 5 billion. But in the steady state, just a quarter of the current inheritance levies targeted at empowering these young people would enable accounts to be established with an initial 1,000 pounds, with 1,000 pounds more to follow at age seven. An incentivized learning program would be introduced alongside this starter capital account, 
to offer the opportunity for these young people to earn a further £3,000 each, and in doing so, prepare themselves to be ready for a fulfilling and economically rewarding adult career. Operated at national level and offered to young people most in need, it would reward those who make the effort to progress through a stru structured programme of building their life skills with small but meaningful tranches of capital to provide a resource base for starting adult life. Now, you may ask, how do we finance this permanent ratchet designed to empower disadvantaged young people? The answer is from the proceeds of inheritance tax. Inheritance tax is a levy on privately owned capital, which is placed into the exchequer and then spent currently as current public expenditure. The process is therefore used to move private, a private sector savings and investment put aside for tomorrow into the public sector running needs of the present. HM Treasury's uh, aversion to hypothecation is well known. And of course, the proposed financing for intergenerational rebalancing could be drawn from the pool of current spending. But logic suggests that the proceeds of the IHT levy, which is paid by less than 5% of estates, and therefore by those in the wealthiest cohort, at rates set by the government in power, should at least in some part be employed in financing intergenerational rebalancing. And now we have another poll for you. So the poll is, how would you like to see inheritance levies handled? Firstly, IHT charged the current levels to go into current public expenditure as at present. Secondly, this same percentage treated as a levy to fuel intergenerational rebalancing for disadvantaged young people. And thirdly, all inheritance tax or levies should be abolished. So there's the questions and there's your choices. And yet again, uh, our audience uh, slightly uh, more contemplative at the moment, but uh, took uh, three quarters of them, uh, almost uh, 12 seconds to answer, uh, which is pretty impressive again. Uh, I'm just gonna leave it open for a second more uh, to get some in. We're now well up into the 80s and 90s now, and I'm just going to share that result. And uh, uh, quite a few look at it as a levy to fuel intergenerational rebalancing, so that's uh, two-thirds, but we've got a third of the audience, 29%, who believe inheritance taxes and levies should be abolished. So there you are, guys. Well, that's very encouraging. That's very encouraging. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. Good. Then there is a need for financial education. The T-level finance exams start this year, but subject, to cho subject choices in A-levels essential for university and heavily influenced by university entrance guidelines uh, do not include financial awareness and nor does GCSE. As a result, financial education in schools is really patchy. Surveys show that less than 25% of young people consider themselves properly prepared and future teachers are emerging from universities and teacher training colleges not equipped to teach the young generation of young people in schools in financial education. We need a comprehensive and determined approach for improving financial capability. A mainstream financial awareness, GCSE, designed to test progress with financial education in schools. Guidelines for universities asking schools to bring forward qualifications and life skills, and in particular, financial capability, and for producing financially capable teachers. And a new focus on primary financial education, which is when 
saver spender attitudes start to develop. Proposals also to encourage employers in both private and public sectors to provide more adult education and financial awareness. Such training for their staff should be made an allowable expense against gross income. Plus, we need fresh ideas designed to reduce or cancel student debt, which hangs like a psychological albatross from the neck of university graduates, reducing their appetite for taking entrepreneurial risk or embarking on home ownership. So making it happen. So if we're going to change the world economic order over the next few years, it will require not just speaking at excellent gatherings like this, but also some positive action. Firstly, politicians and international statespeople will require real academic rigor behind these proposals. And that's why I'm working with Cambridge University to introduce a four-year research fellowship under the acronym SHARE to build a convincing case. Please send me an email if you're interested to hear more the email details at the end of the slides. From a commercial point of view, I've tried to move the dial in the UK for over the for the past 30 years with the Share Centre. Our whole focus has been on building personal share ownership, improving share owner engagement, and helping people to take control of their own investment, pursuing disintermediation. Again, please get in touch if you can help. And for intergenerational rebalancing, the Share Foundation is very active in empowering young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. We pioneered incentivized learning, and we can show that it works. And we're now helping to make the Child Trust Fund a reality for those reaching 18 over the next few years, to prove how effective it is, and to provide evidence for its re reintroduction on a more progressive and permanent basis. If you'd like to help, please consider becoming a Child Trust Fund ambassador. Again, the links are at the ends of the slides. So in summary, people don't like the removal of their control over their own lives, whether as a result of state or excess intermediation by financial institutions. People don't like living in a society where the rich get richer and the poor poorer. There are two basic reasons why egalitarian capitalism matters. Margaret Thatcher may have pushed for these concepts in the 1980s, but institutional intermediation, privilege and wealth polarization remain with us today. It's now 40 years since Sir Keith Joseph spoke of breaking the cycle of deprivation. A few years before that, Martin Luther King said, the American dream reminds us that every person is heir to the legacy of worthiness. Yet little has happened. Now is the time for change. Thank you. Well, Gavin, that was amazing and compelling in many, many regards and genuinely intellectually stimulating. And the audience uh, out here have got a lot of comments and questions for you. Um, there are a few amusing ones. Uh, Lasse Instaford Ofsvog has a serious question, but just first, he, he says there's a quote by Terry Pratchett that's too good to mention, uh, not to mention, given your comment about fish. He says, build a man the fire and he'll be warm for a day set a man on fire and he'll be warm for the rest of his life. Lasse's <laughs> uh, serious uh, point is, what mechanisms could be set in place to hinder the seemingly unstoppable congregation of money over time that seems to be an integral part of any capitalist and competitive system? 
Uh, you've clearly mentioned uh, inheritance tax adjustments, but he's interested in other ones because even with a hard economic reset of the current economic system, it seems to be unavoidable in the long run. Well, I, I understand that point, but there is one great thing about human life, with the, which is basically the good Lord doesn't want us moving into the next world with us pockets stuffed with cash. So something has got to be done with that cash. It's either going to go to your descendants or it's going to go into the government or it's going to go uh, for disadvantaged young people. And, and actually, uh, it probably is a mix of those. It's bound to be a mix of those really. But the extent to which that happens is a matter for democracy and it's for government really to actually steer about the proportions which go into each area. But the fact is that there the, is that natural ratchet of death which actually requires us to rethink that process. And that's the element of a second part of my talk. But I do think that the other aspect, I, and I mentioned the technological revolution, it is absolutely creating a massive opportunity at the moment. Because you know, within this country alone, there's 8 million uh, prime customers of Amazon. Just think of the number of customers across the world of uh, Apple and Amazon and Tencent and all the rest of them, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the opportunities which would come of actually getting those dividends flowing in all those directions. And so I do think we've got a couple of opportunities there. I'm sorry to repeat the points I've just made, but I really think they are the answers to you. Okay. Um, a number of people have asked for links um, i've put them into the chat room they'll also be posted on the website folks so those of you who'd like to know about the cambridge project and other things uh, in particular uh, gavin is really genuinely seeking and do send this to people you think would do this research properly uh, uh, to people to apply for the stipendary research fellowship on these uh, this economics of inequality at kings and cambridge uh, meanwhile i would like to turn uh, perhaps again another sort of quip but sort of followed by some serious points uh philip leone he's kind of curious is our pm a marxist or a stalinist or uh is he really a capitalist who knows um but philip's interested in how do we stop the asymmetrical influence of global asset managers the top 20 control 50 trillion of other people's assets which is uh, on some estimates about a quarter of all the assets in the world well, I think the, the answer has to be in dis disintermediation. I remember when I first started the Share Centre, um, no, not the Share Centre, actually Barclay Share, before the Share Centre, um, and uh, I was introduced to a Don in, in Oxford, and, uh, and I explained to him what I was trying to achieve uh, in retail stockbroking, and he said, what you're talking about is disintermediation. And the more I thought about that over the last 35 years, the more I think he put his finger right on the button there. Because the fact is, I've worked in the financial world for all my career, and I can see the insidious nature of, the, of intermediation just pulling in there, the way the expertise actually takes control. And what it's doing is removing the ability for people to take control of their own lives. And, and we have got to hold ourselves back from that. There is a, a, a self-restraining ordinance, which is really honest, I think, from that point of view. But there are things which we can do in the way in which we structure uh, the capital markets and that's why i'd like to see a working group with hm treasury to look into some of those points that i brought up today which would increase disintermediation and bring through personal share share ownership and much more corporate governments much more participation 
in terms of you know the making companies work because the fact is that 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 that, that company has uh, so companies have both employees and customers as their 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 interested parties and you know if we can really get their their customers involved as their share owners then we can start to see that disintermediation starting to occur both at a corporate level and at a financial level okay uh, graham elliott and you'll remember in the kind of the pre-chat i too have issues about hypothecation being effective graham elliott's asking why bother hypothecating uh, IHT when VAT and income tax could pay for a more comprehensive approach to achieving generational equality. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't feel wedded to uh, uh, to the proposal of hypothecation. I I think it's it's sensible when uh, when uh, you know uh, private individuals have been saving up money and and, uh, uh, and investing over the years uh, to actually keep it uh, uh, focused on the future rather than squander it on current expenditure. Um, but you know, uh, you know. Yes, you're quite right. It could come out of VAT. It could come out of a lot of different sources. And I don't think that uh, uh, that that would be a a, a, a a sort of fence I would fall over. Um, if hypothecation is too much of a problem, let's just take the money from where it's available. Okay. Um, ben Nickemacher is asking: Would it be right to say that the poor are poor? simply because they are poor? Uh, and if so, he's not, he's not a serious point here, how can you genuinely move them from the cycle of poverty and deprivation by the interventions that you've mentioned? Uh, you seriously need to read the epilogue of Wind, Sand and Stars by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And the bit at the end of it, where he, he's looking at this young child between a couple of, uh, 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 of you know, really worn out people traveling across Europe in the 1930s. Uh, and he muses on what this child could be. It could be a Mozart. It could be all sorts of amazing things, but it will get simply conditioned into the same squalid life. That, it, that their parents have actually been into, because it won't get those opportunities. And that's what I mean about nurture. You know, uh, every child born has the same potential in life to achieve wonderful things. You only have to look at the young people in care, which we look after in the Share Foundation, uh, to see what some of them can achieve. You need to give them the opportunities to have those experiences, to build those life skills. The resources are only just part of it. It's actually the learning and the earning, uh, you know, and building the responsibility with it. And it does come. And so, uh, you know, that's why I think it is important to work at it. Please do read that epilogue. Um, Tony Bradley uh, makes a point, which I think is also quite deep. Can measures of household production be used as the metrics for accruals to junior ISAs? Yes, I think it probably could be, actually. I, I mean, I think that uh, the Child Trust Fund has been, uh, you know, it was slightly progressive. Uh, if a young person was family was in receipt of child tax credit, uh, then uh, the uh, contributions from government were £500 as opposed to 250 And that applied to about 17% of the population. Um, but I have to say, I would like a new scheme to be much more progressive. There really isn't any need to be issuing uh, government-sponsored accounts to young people in families who have, you know, relatively quite a wealthy background from that point of view. Um, and, you know, but, 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 but I think yardsticks such as the receipt of child tax credit actually do provide a good indicator on that. And, you know, you only have to talk to citizens advice to find out how, how to actually identify, uh, you know, people from that point of view. 
So yes, you may be right about that one, but there may be other yardsticks which we can use as well. Uh, and, and I would certainly suggest getting in touch with some of the expert charities on that to find out what's best. Okay. Well, it's a very active chat room and folks, I, we, all these will be sent to Gavin because I can't cover them all. But um, just an interesting point here, Hugh Purser would like a little bit more information about your thoughts on you know, universal basic income. Uh, he's not sure how this is leveling down when so many don't even have minimal levels of income. Uh, could this not be partially done as well through share ownership and dividends? And uh, Edwina Morton makes, a, I think, an excellent point here. Money can also condition people to live in a squalid life if it's used that way. What, apart from better education in schools, can prevent that happening for a large number of young people and their families? So your thoughts on uh, UBI and also on uh, this concept that, in fact, a lot of this stuff could condition us to sit there. What, what else other than education might make a difference? Well, the, the thing is, but, but you know, so much of this whole area is about psychological development. And, and, and I do feel that economics does need a really good dose of psychology attached to it. Uh, you know, I think you call it behavioral economics, but it's, it's really important. Um, the fact is that UBI is, is very much just a sort of staple income just to keep people from, you know, at, at subsistence levels. It doesn't have any degree of, of, of a sense of ownership with it, a sense of earning or anything like that. Whereas actually, you know, uh, even receiving dividends, you feel that participation in there and you can feel the flow of being part of that wealth generation process. So I think it, it is really important from that point of view. And uh, it, so, so, I mean, I think the answer to these questions really is, you know, do look at the psychology of it and, and actually to see how it can be made real for people. Uh, because I think that's at the heart of it. I, I mean, the thing is, there's another proposal around, um, which I think was from the IPPR, about a slab of capital being given to young people at the age of 25. I mean, actually, I have a problem with that, because it's just landing money on top of people, but it's not preparing them for it. And actually, it's that combination of responsibility coming along with ownership, which really makes the thing come alive. And, and you know, we all know, those of us who actually do have some assets, that actually, you know, that sense of ownership is really critically important. That's why I was talking about uh, in my talk about situations where people inheritance or, or you know, where, you know, uh, basically there is a lottery win or something like that. Um, you know, you don't get that sense of ownership which comes with it. And that builds over time. So that's why we need to work on those psychological things. Um, Alex Eagle uh, is curious, you know, and in fact, it's an organization that I supported uh, quite strongly, ZN supported quite strongly getting going. Uh, what about organizations like the Fair Banking Foundation uh, and getting financial institutions to be accredited for the provision of, you know, transparent, unambiguous products that laymen and women can understand? I think that's fundamentally important. And, uh, and in fact, I've been really pleased. I mean, one of the things we're doing on our Child Trust Fund recovery campaign is working with the big banks, uh, in particular NatWest. I've also got some, uh, uh, some people digging out in HSBC to find out about the basic bank account opening, uh, which is now taking place. Uh, you don't even have to have a fixed address to get a bank account these days, which is fantastic. I mean, yeah. for a young person, it's really important to have these very straightforward financial uh, matters coming with them. And of course, we can build all that into the financial awareness. In the Share Foundation, we have a program called the Step Ladder of Achievement. Uh, and we take young people through literacy, numeracy, financial education, uh, and actually give them every opportunity to be able to understand the basics of, uh, 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 of, of sort of financial awareness. 
So, I mean, uh, 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 yeah, so certainly, I think it's important to work with those basic uh, financial products, yeah. Okay, um, we're, we're moving into time at the moment, so we're just gonna have to be sh uh, quite sharp here, um, but there are a lot of comments and questions. I'd like to cover three areas if I could. The first one is Philip Leone's made a, a large number of comments, which I, I can't do justice to, but broadly speaking, you know, what are your thoughts on new technology helping here, particularly like an inviolate digital asset combined with some sort of intrinsic value? You know, he's got some points here about trying to create assets that can't be intermediated by these quasi-monopolists. Um, so any thoughts on the use of new technology to rebalance? Well, I think it's really important to work with new technology. I mean, it, you know, it's not really relevant to this talk, but I actually feel that the technological revolution has resulted in having these incredibly long-lasting flat inflation, very low interest rates as well. Uh, the way it demonetizes demand and introduces huge scalability and supply. But I do think that we have to work with uh, with technology, and that's why I proposed uh, a route for uh, shares for data which doesn't involve breaking up the technological giants, uh, but actually giving them, uh, you know, a, accountable, uh, a, you know, governance from that point of view. Because I think you've got to maintain the strength and innovation within these big organizations. I do respect that. Uh, and, and all of the tools which come through that as well. Um, I mean, as you can see, I'm no spring chicken myself, uh, but actually, yeah, I can assure you that I try and keep on top of technology as best as I possibly can, because it is the future for so many of us. And we have to work with it to make the use of it and, and to actually get it as a tool which helps the humanity drive forward. So yes, you're quite right. Good. Um, interesting uh, question uh, as we come to the end a bit here. Uh, Ian Shackle, Gavin, what are the main obstacles to the improvements in financial education that you outline and, and which uh, Ian supports? What are the main well, obstacles? Yeah, the thing is that there, there, there's a couple which I'd like to bring out. I think one is that um, financial education for many ministers, it seems to be allied with maths. And it's great for teaching compound interest, but it's pretty useless for teaching any other form of financial awareness. So actually, I think somebody needs to have a really good talk with HM Treasury. I tried to do it um, uh, uh, yeah, over recent years, and I've had this come back to me over and over again both from the DFE and from the Treasury. So the more you can get through to, 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 to ministers to explain that financial awareness has got to be dealt with in its own right, so that we actually bring up a, 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 a cohort of uh, teachers for the future who are skilled about the subject, I think that's really important. The other thing is that, uh, you know, governments have a, a time horizon of five years. And that's really difficult when we're bringing in changes, which are gonna last decades, generations, hopefully indefinitely. And so, you know, we need to get a longer term perspective into the way in which we do government. And certainly, you know, it was one of my responses to the Law Commission uh, submissions which had to be in last uh, Saturday to say that we really do need to build in this much longer term perspective. And I'd like to see that coming in through the second chamber, uh, but that's quite a separate issue to this talk. So uh, that's for another, for another day. Okay. We've got many, many more comments and questions which I'll send in, but sadly we've run to time, but I'll just uh, knock off uh, three just to give a flavor of uh, the conversations that's been going on. Uh, Angel Gaviero is curious about uh, the potential of the recent intent to move from shareholder to stakeholder in companies, boards made of you know truly independent and wider representative members, will that help? Hugh Purser uh, makes a suggestion, why not convert the debt from further education loans into privatization share issues? 
Uh, Tony Bradley, I, I think, makes a, makes another good point here. We don't need to choose between universal basic income and citizen share ownership. The Finnish experiment with UBI pointed to the increase in psychological well-being. Uh, UBI can be a platform on which to add share ownership. So I think what you've challenged us with are a number of policy uh, initiatives, and I would point out, folks, that uh, Gavin is throwing them out there. He's not desperately behind any particular one of them, but he is, he is issuing us with a real call to change. Is that fair, Gavin? <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, you know, we've been stuck between these two uh, poles of communism and, uh, you know, raw capitalism now for the last hundred years. And I mean, quite honestly, it's not doing us any good. And the liberal middle, middle ground, it, it, you know, seems to get sucked into intermediation so easily. If we could have a disintermediated middle ground, you know, which brings out egalitarian form of capitalism, we will have a basis worth handing on to our children and to our grandchildren and their descendants after them. And that's what I want to achieve. I want to change the world order. Fantastic. Well, in our small way over here, Gavin, at Zien, we've been working over the last uh, couple of years on alterations to the Fisher equations on the, the, the velocity and, and the quantity of money and trying to add distribution to it, which I think is one of the missing factors. But we could go on, and unfortunately we can't. So I'd like, to, if I could, three quick rounds of thanks. Firstly, to uh, to our sponsors, again, as ever, thank you so much for allowing us to range widely and freely, in particular here with an issue that, you know, ought to challenge all of us and therefore be a little uncomfortable. We appreciate it. Uh, secondly, if I may, I would like to thank you, the audience. You've done a fantastic job today. It's been darn easy. I just sit here and read out what you send me. It's great. Um, I love it. Uh, really good contributions here today, and they will all get to Gavin. Uh, and a reminder, of course, uh, next week, we've got a lot of things coming up. I shouldn't pick on any particular one, but using AI to amplify the accuracy of uh, human forecasters is going to be particularly interesting for, for a lot of you out there. But as ever, go to the website. And finally, 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 my most important thanks, of course, Gavin, is to you. Uh, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on today and sharing these challenging thoughts based on a lifetime uh, in trying to increase uh, share ownership and in trying to increase financial literacy and frankly, trying to do the right thing. So thank you so much, Gavin, for coming. Unfortunately, our technology hasn't advanced enough to allow us to have proper applause, but I do have here my Korean karmic clapper, uh, which will have to serve as our sort of a sats way of, of doing that. And we look forward to hearing uh, uh, your progress on this path to changing capitalism for the better. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you.